welcome to uh, the JNIS uh, podcast. This is a, another of our Editor's Choice uh, articles, uh, which appears in this month's Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. Uh, I'm pleased to be discussing a manuscript entitled Implications of Limiting Mechanical Thrombectomy to Patients with Emergent Large Vessel Occlusion, Meeting Top-Tier Evidence Criteria. And we're honored to have two of the authors of that manuscript, Rohini Bollet and Adam Arthur. And I would ask uh, you two to please introduce yourselves. This is uh, Rohini Bollet. I'm one of the vascular neurologists here at University of Tennessee, Memphis. Hi, Adam Arthur here. I'm a, a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Tennessee, Memphis, uh, and Simmons-Murphy Clinic. Uh, this is quite a timely article, as we all know. Uh, the issue of uh, mechanical thrombolysis and acute ischemic stroke is uh, a paramount issue for our community uh, and uh, internationally and nationally. Uh, and this uh, manuscript uh, makes a valuable contribution. So there are uh, some uh, interesting facets of this manuscript that I wanted to particularly discuss with, uh, with the two of you. Uh, specifically, can you tell me a, a little bit about how um, uh, the research and timing of this uh, manuscript was, uh, was obtained? Uh, the study period obviously is from 2012 to 2015, uh, and yet the positive New England Journal Medicine studies were published in 2015. So, how d how did you guys conceptualize uh, the, the research behind this manuscript? You know, despite the disappointing news that we had at the ISC 2013, uh, which I call the Honolulu shock, we continued to believe in the role of thrombectomy here. Those trials evaluated less effective technology, but we stayed at the cutting edge and saw improvements in opening vessels with the latest devices. In a sense, our sample was perfect. It was without any biases. We were not involved in any of these, um, the trials that, were, that later went on to prove that the thrombectomy works. Um, so that was the conception of this uh, this research project. In addition to what Rohini mentions about uh, technology, I think uh, the other important aspect of the Honolulu shock and the contrast between that and the 2015 trials or these results uh, would be patient selection. Um, so we firmly believe that ELVO patients, emergent large vessel occlusion patients, um, are facing a, a, a terrible future without intervention, and uh, it's critical that they be evaluated uh, not on the basis of uh, what medical therapies may or may not have been successful over uh, a randomized controlled trial, but on the basis of an informed consent for an intervention, uh, comparing their natural history uh, to uh, possible outcomes. And uh, in a rapidly moving field, um, uh, there's there's more than just a, a blunt hammer in terms of the kind of data that we have to bring to bear to give patients and their families the right information so that they can make uh, good decisions for themselves. 
So, uh, Adam, would it be fair to say that even after the negative trials were published in 2013, the accumulated data at your institution and, and your perception that mechanical thrombolysis was, was still working um, really prompted you to, to go forward with this treatment modality, even though uh, these, these trials had been published and there were, and there were certainly uh, a negative wave towards mechanical thrombolysis. It would. Dr. Bole and, and the stroke neurology team, as well as our neurointerventional team, uh, were convinced uh, that uh, data uh, that doesn't verify an occlusion of a large vessel, that doesn't verify the potential for saving brain, really isn't generalizable to the kinds of patients that we were treating. And so um, there's where um, doctors and nurses who are on the front line um, need more than just a uh, a guideline that uh, they need uh, to be able to appreciate and understand the literature and then translate that into um, treatment options for patients and their families. Uh, you allude to the issue in, in the manuscript uh, of payer support for mechanical thrombolysis, which I think is it's a, it's a big deal now, especially as, as we're seeing all of these uh, movements in our in our federal government towards revising the Affordable Care Act uh, and so forth. Can you discuss a bit how um, how the publication of negative trials could could really impact on on payers in terms of whether or not they'll support these these treatments, uh, especially these treatments that we know uh, as physicians are uh, incredibly powerful and and do improve patient outcomes. Was this an issue at your institution? Fortunately, um, our stroke team did not look at the national payer policies. And uh, we continue to refer patients for endovascular therapy for, for all this time, and we will continue to do that. But there were incidences after the negative trials where uh, we had some challenges with the insurance companies, but this was after the treatment. It never stopped uh, us from treating the patient. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we're very fortunate to be viewed by patients in a special way. Um, in spite of all of the challenges with finance and medical legal situations, um, patients and their families still treat doctors very well, and they um, expect us to look out for their best interests, and, and we do. It's incumbent upon us to do that. So um, at no point... Um, would I uh, endorse or have I seen a member of either the stroke team or the neurointerventional team um, to deny therapy uh, for an acute stroke patient on the basis of what an insurance company might subsequently say about that? Um, I think your question, Philippe, gets to uh, whether it's gotten so bad that we're not putting patients first for acute stroke, and the answer to that question is an emphatic no. That's, uh, that's great to hear. Uh, one of the things that uh, I found interesting in, in your manuscript was the discrepancy in symptom onset to groin puncture time between the two groups, uh, those two groups being those that met top-tier evidence and those that did not. And it was uh, quite a large discrepancy, 230 minutes for the group meeting top-tier evidence and 380 minutes for those not meeting top-tier evidence. Obviously, a two-and-a-half-hour time difference 
and let your and uh, yet your clot removal times were essentially the same. And this was even in the setting of clots that, uh, in the non-top tier group, were potentially more distal than M1 occlusions, uh, and in uh, what obviously appeared to be sicker patients, uh, patients that required intubation and and were in poorer condition when they arrived. Can you speculate a bit uh, why you feel that uh, it was equally as easy to remove these clots uh, in these pretty diverse patient populations? In terms of speculation, uh, I believe that the, the two things that contribute to making a mechanical embolectomy more difficult are tortuous access and pre-existing atherosclerotic disease. Um, those things um, can really make uh, a procedure difficult. But if a patient does have an emergent occlusion and they do have living brain, um, I would speculate that often there's collateral circulation beyond the occlusion that keeps those vessels open. So really we're, we're you know, trying to open a clot that is uh, um, bridging uh, uh, and, and occluding a pathway between two open arteries. Um, and uh, in that circumstance, if if the microcirculation or collateral pathways have kept Mr. Jones' arteries open, uh, distal to the clot, uh, at least on life support, then um, there may be no correlation between time from symptom onset and technical difficulty uh, in achieving uh, a good reperfusion. Um, your conclusions that 33% of patients in the non-top tier group achieved a modified Rankin score of less than or equal to two at three months and that nearly 50% of all acute ischemic strokes at your institution would not have met top tier evidence after accounting for confounding factors is uh, is quite uh, fascinating. I mean, that, that is a huge number of, of patients uh, that we see it, uh, across the board, uh, even at our institution. So obviously a big population of, of patients that uh, certainly need treatment and can, can be benefited by treatment. You discuss uh, confounding factors in detail in the manuscript, and you mentioned that by accounting for them, uh, you uh, came up with these conclusions of 33% and, and 50%. Can you discuss a little bit more in detail what you mean by accounting for those confounding factors and what those confounding factors were? For the multivariate analysis, there were four factors that we accounted for. The aspect score, the symptom onset to groin puncture, which you already mentioned, was significantly different between the two groups, 230 versus 380 minutes, the IV thrombolysis, and intubation during the procedure. So these were the factors that were uh, accounted for. What is important to note that we definitely cannot match for the time from symptom onset to groin puncture. The non-top tier group did have longer times, as long as 150 minutes as compared to the top tier group. Our selection, this just points to the fact that our selection of patients was based primarily on vessel occlusion, large proximal arterial occlusion, even at extended time periods when we had good parenchymal imaging. We compensate to be safe, but select good brains, and even at an extended time window. I think time should not matter when we have a good favorable imaging pattern the parenchymal pattern as well as the collateral pattern. Uh, this is 
at here at University of Tennessee and maybe across uh, all our centers which work like this. This is our philosophy of acute stroke care, I believe. Uh, I'm concerned, though, uh, about our uh, limitation in terms of imaging for these patients with posterior circulation strokes. Can you comment on that uh, a bit as well? Yes. So um, there's an aspect score that we used. Uh, in my opinion, sometimes even going to the 40-40 window for an aspect score, I don't even do that, but we made sure that we calculated it uh, to a score uh, best determined. Um, a good brain, I keep, uh, we, we believe in this so much, a good brain, you see a large vessel occlusion, I think we need to chase it. And we have good collaterals, they, we need to give them that 40% chance of recovery. If it was my own family member, uh, I, would, I would definitely pursue this option instead of letting them give them a, giving them an 80% mortality. I would choose that 40%. Thank you. Uh, finally, the whole concept of when and how to conduct future randomized trials on acute ischemic stroke is obviously a sensitive and contentious issue. I know, Adam, you've um, postulated a bit on this in, in some editorial commentary that you've made in the journal Neurointerventional Surgery. Why do you feel that the subject of non-top-tier evidence uh, of mechanical thrombolysis in acute ischemic stroke is perhaps evaluated better through prospective registries than randomized trials. So I'm particularly interested in clinical research and would like to practice evidence-based medicine. Um, and so the answer to that question uh, has to do with the practice of medicine and the conduction of clinical re research. Um, everything we do has to be founded on putting the patient first. And so if you know that the patient faces a natural history of, uh, of real uh, horror, 80% uh, death and even in the 20% uh, that, that is uh, salvageable, um, uh, bad quality of life outcomes, uh, for instance, in basal occlusion that we just recently discussed, um, and you know that you have a therapy that offers them a, a shot, as, as Rohini just pointed out, 40% is actually, you know, a good shot in a situation like that, 60% is even better, um, then you no longer have clinical equipoise, and it is unethical uh, to attempt to conduct a randomized cl clinical trial for that population of patients. Now, that's not to say that we don't have evidence and that we can't uh, offer uh, and postulate uh, and theorize uh, other ideas and other ways to advance our understanding of this disease and, and how best to, to treat these patients. Um, but there is a little bit of a miscarriage uh, in, in evidence-based medicine when um, uh, panels are convened that evaluate the uh, uh, evidence in terms of tiers, um, which is meant initially to be a guide for a discerning clinician, but then those, uh, those documents are taken by payers or institutions and used to uh, create a protocol or cookbook that restricts uh, the practice of medicine uh, and restricts uh, what well-meaning, well-educated clinicians uh, can, can offer to patients uh, in the process of informed consent. Um, so in some ways, we're at a, a turning point for acute ischemic stroke. Um, the archetypal bow-tie neurologist who pontificates about various treatment options and anatomic location is a very different animal than, you know, Rohini, 
who has dedicated her life to coming in at all hours of the day and night to try and save somebody who's dying and losing neurologic function. And, um, you know, uh, the design of a medical randomized trial to compare two therapies in large cohorts is a great design, um, but it may not be appropriate when we're looking at a devastating disease and we have what appears to be an extremely effective salvage uh, surgery. So I don't want to be um, miscast into saying that, you know, we don't want to do high-level good clinical research um, that's so needed. Um, but we have to work on improving systems of care, uh, recognition and, and triage of patients who have emergent large vessel occlusion uh, because it's clear that they need the help and it's clear that we have therapies that can be very effective. Uh, in conclusion, I'd like to thank both of you uh, not only for this work uh, but also for uh, your continued work uh, which was recently published online as well. Um, you published a follow-up article to this, um, uh, which was published online recently in the JNIS, um, reaffirming these results and looking at them in a more prospective fashion. But uh, the overwhelming conclusion that uh, good functional recovery is possible in this non-top-tier evidence group uh, and a consideration for mechanical thrombolysis uh, is certainly a powerful one and uh, one that will uh, benefit a large percentage of our ischemic stroke patients. So congratulations to you, and thank you for joining me on this podcast. Well, thank you for giving us the opportunity for to be here. Thanks, Philippe. I would urge our readers to look at this manuscript, which is now appearing in the March issue of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. And again, the title is Implications of Limiting Mechanical Thrombectomy to Patients with Emergent Large Vessel Occlusion, Meeting Top-Tier Evidence by Rohini Bollet et al. Uh, we'd like to thank the two uh, authors, two of the authors of this manuscript for uh, contributing today to this podcast. Uh, as well, um, online, we have recently published a follow-up article to this uh, publication by uh, Nitin Goyle uh, et al.